Amen. Good morning, Joy. How's it going? How's that extra hour of sleep treating you? Except I do see you new parents and that extra hour of sleep you did not get. So if you are a parent of young children, make sure to grab extra coffee on your way out um, as they transition into real normal time. Um, I'm supposed to say something about how the Ducks won last night. Woo! I am trying my hardest to be a Duck fan. I married a Duck fan, and I'm slowly getting there, maybe. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Um, give a holler if you were here last week for Candy Palooza. Woo! I think that sometimes we need that extra hour of sleep to sleep the candy off. And I keep telling myself that I don't actually want more candy because I've literally had candy every day, but then I just keep reaching for it. I don't know why. I'm like, why am I doing this? I've had a piece every day. But anyways, we have been in a series over the past couple of months where we're going through the basics. We're calling it Sunday school. We're going back to school. We're going back to the basics. You need the basics whenever you want to do almost anything, right? Um, Nathaniel, my husband, and I, we love this show that is called Worst Cooks in America. And basically, if you have not been familiar with it, the premise of the show is friends and family nominate people in their life who they deem the worst cooks. And we are talking no knowledge of boiling water, measuring, anything like that. And so a group of 20 worst cooks get to go on this show where two celebrity chefs train them up, and at the end, the two worst cooks who have progressed the farthest make these five-star dinners and compete, and the winner of that gets the cash money. So if you have not had the privilege of experiencing this fine cinematic experience, we have a clip for you today. I love that so much. Talk about people who need the basics. One of my favorites that they didn't show in here was a vegetarian, and the challenge was to make a hamburger, so he was going to make a grilled cheese instead, being a vegetarian. And to grill the cheese, he literally threw the cheese on the grill to give it a nice sear. So if you have any experience with cooking at all, that's not going to sear anything whatsoever. But anyways, I find it really interesting that these top celebrity chefs who can literally make a five-star meal out of anything are painfully walking these contestants through the basics of the basic. I didn't even know you could get more basic, like taking the knife guard off. And they could have easily delegated that painful process to someone who is less experienced, a cook who's a few steps back maybe, to teach them the basics, and then those celebrity chefs could maybe take the contestants when they reach a certain level. But what the celebrity chefs know is that the moment that they take a step backward from the basics, the moment they stop teaching the basics, stop engaging in the basics, is the moment that they risk taking a step back in their career. The moment they risk maybe losing their restaurant if they don't hone in on these basics every single day. And that's kind of like our faith. The moment we think we can step back from the basics or we've become too advanced, for the basics is the moment we risk taking a step back from our relationship with God. Because you can't separate the basics from the advanced deep stuff. You can't take knife skills and boiling water out of a five-star meal. You can't separate that. So that's why we're going through the basics. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jake 
talked about counting the cost and then making the decision to follow Jesus. And that's where we're going to pick up today. If you have made the decision to follow Jesus, that is a monumental moment in your life. And we have a lot of those moments in our life where we have these monumental milestones. Maybe it's the birth of a child or a grandchild, and your identity is shifted. Or maybe you graduate grad school. Your identity shifts from a student to a graduate. When we decide to follow Christ, it's not only a shift in our identity, the Bible tells us it's a complete overhaul. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5.17, he tells us that when we make the decision to follow Christ, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone, the new has come. It's not the old is gone except for these parts and the new takes up the majority. No, the old is gone, completely gone, and the new has come. What is the old and what is the new? The Bible goes on in Romans 5.10 to say, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. The old was that we were enemies of God. And then in John 1.12, he said, yet to all who did receive him, who believe his name, he gave the right to be children of God. So the new is children of God. The old is we are enemies, the new is that we are children of God, and that is our identity. And we have to grasp this, we really need to get this identity, because everything we do flows out of who we are, everything. You can't separate those two things. And you might be thinking, okay, well, if God is truly creator and created all of us, therefore would he not be father of all of us, whether you receive Jesus or not. And John Stott in his book, Basic Christianity, tells us God is certainly the creator of all, and we are his offspring in the sense that we derive our being from him. But the Bible clearly distinguishes between the general relationship that God has with the whole human race as creator and the special relationship as father he establishes with those who are his new creation through Jesus Christ. We have a unique relationship as children of God, and that comes with unique privileges and responsibilities. Whenever you have something unique, a unique role, a unique position, it's going to come with its own responsibilities and its own privileges. If you are an athlete at a high caliber, your responsibility is to Uh, participate at that caliber, and your privileges may include access to certain training centers, certain coaches, etc. When I lived in Portland, I lived in Portland for a couple years, and I had a job as a preschool teacher, and eventually I left that job, and my last week, I found out that apparently one of the perks of this job was a max pass. And in Portland, that means that I had access to public transportation for free. I could go on the train, on the bus, anywhere for free. Keep in mind, I had to drive an hour into the city every day in my car because I didn't want to pay for this pass. So had I known about that privilege, it would have completely changed every part of my experience of living in Portland. Even my weekends, I probably would have gone to more restaurants, had more fun, done more things, but I was totally oblivious to this privilege. And we don't want to be oblivious to our privilege as children of God. So today we're going to go over three privileges we have when we enter his family as children of God. So the first one is intimacy. 
So because we have been saved by Christ, the Bible says we are hidden in Christ. So everything he has, we have access to as well. And one of the things he has is an intimate relationship with God as Father. And Jesus both teaches this and he demonstrates it. He teaches it when the disciples, his followers, say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And out of all the words Jesus could have used to start off his prayer in addressing God, out of all the names of God he has, he says, Father. Jesus takes this one opportunity to teach them about prayer and says, Father, when he addresses God. Jesus also demonstrates this at a personal level. When he is praying in a garden, he uses the word Abba to address God. That's Aramaic, and we don't have an exact English translation, but what scholars believe and interpreters say is that it's kind of like a mix between Papa, Daddy, Dad, an intimate familial term, along with something that has a tone of reverence and obedience along with it as well. And so in Jewish culture, Kids would call their fathers Abba. However, slaves and servants were absolutely forbidden to do that because though it was a term of reverence, it was just that intimate. And this is perhaps why in Romans 8.15, Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the word cry Paul uses in that text denotes a loud vocalization. And this makes me think of my two-year-old son. Whenever my husband is driving home from work, I tell him, Jonah, daddy's almost home. And he goes to the window and he watches. And when he recognizes my husband's car, he goes, dad, 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 dad. And that vocalization comes from the intimate relationship they share. He knows his father and thus he says, dad, dad, in a loud cry because he's not timid or reserved in his affections for his dad. And so it's really interesting to me that when Jesus was in the desert, he was praying before his ministry started. He went to the desert to pray, to prepare, to fast. And the enemy, Satan, has this opportunity to tempt Jesus. He's like ready to challenge Jesus, ready to bring him down. He wants to bring him down. He wants to throw him off his course. And the enemy comes to Jesus. And out of all the things the enemy could have challenged Jesus with, out of all the insults, out of all the things he could have poked and prodded Jesus with, the very first words out of his mouth are, if you are the son of God, the enemy chose to attack the fact that Jesus had an intimate, close relationship with God. And the enemy was trying to question what sonship should look like. The devil recognized the power of intimacy in our relationship with God. Do we recognize that power as well? Now, intimacy is kind of um, can be an abstract kind of concept. And so I love this description by Dr. Kurt Thompson in his book, Anatomy of the Soul. He says, we tend to place a great deal of emphasis on the ways and degree we, to which we know God or know things about God, rather than the degree to which we are being known by God. Pause for a moment and ponder the following. When you consider the state of your own or someone else's spiritual health, how often do you ask, 
what is my experience of being known by God? If you are like me, you often inquire or reflect on what or how much you know or know about God. This is to be expected in the world in which we live. If you allow yourself to be known by God, you invite a different and frankly more terrifying experience. You are now in a position of vulnerability. In essence, you must, must, must trust another with yourself. To be known is to be pursued, examined, shaken. To be known is to be loved, to have hopes and even demands placed on you. It is to risk not only the furniture in your home being rearranged, but your floor plans being rewritten, your walls being demolished and reconstructed. To be known means that you allow your shame and guilt to be exposed in order to be healed. How can we build this type of intimacy of knowing God, not just knowing about God, although that is good and needed, but how do we build this intimacy of being known and knowing God on a day-to-day basis? We have two ways today to share with you. First is to cultivate awareness. Our Western way of thinking likes to compartmentalize life. So we have, I am a parent here, over here I have my job, over here I have my sleeping habits, over here I have my social media. And we tend to forget that these things are all interwoven and connected. In fact, people often get in hot water when they forget that their social media also kind of somehow connects to their career and their job. We see that in culture a lot, right? And we know this cognitively as well. If an athlete goes to the gym to train for a while and trains hard and focuses like an athlete at the gym, but then they go home and eat five burgers and wash it down with eight hours of Netflix, we know that their performance is going to be much different than an athlete who goes to the gym like an athlete, sleeps like an athlete, has relationships with other people like an athlete. And it is that way with our intimacy with God. We are going to have very different outcomes if we see our intimacy with God as only in these four walls or only in joy group, or if we see it the way we sleep, the way we interact on social media, the way we stand in line for coffee. And it's as simple as saying, while I'm making my coffee, God, you are here. I'm going to acknowledge your presence. I'm going to give attention to you. Our attention is our devotion. Where we put our attention is going to transform us into who we are going to look like. So where are you giving your attention? Relationship expert John Gottman, he studies married couples for a living, um, and he will film couples and analyze all the metrics involved. So every single fight, every interaction, every connection, every dialogue, everything, he literally measures like the words they use in all these metrics. And when asked, Dr. Gottman, what is the single most um, like predictor of success in a marriage? He says, It is if they are attentive to each other. And that can apply to our relationship with God as well. Are we attentive to him? Because we know that he is attentive to us. So the first privilege we have as children of God is intimacy. And the second way we can deepen that intimacy is by receiving the Lord's discipline. That does not sound very fun. That does not even sound intimate. I don't know about you, but when I hear intimacy, I don't go, yay, discipline, bring it on, give me all the discipline. I want it, please. No, I'm usually embarrassed. I'm like, oh, really? I don't like this feeling. 
But it is actually God's acceptance of us. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Like I said, I don't think delight and discipline in the same sentence ever, only in the Bible. But God connects the two. When we go back to that word Abba, there's an element of obedience and familial intimacy. You cannot have the intimate relationship with Christ if you don't also have the reverence and obedience component as well. Let's take this and make it really practical. If you are in a situation where you are feeling tempted, so let's say I'm in a conversation that is veering towards the way of gossip and I'm feeling tempted to engage with this gossip. And let's say I end up going through with it. I say things about people that are not true and bring them down. In that moment, anytime we have a moment for obedience, it's actually an open door and a moment for an opportunity to trust God's promises. In that moment, was I going to trust that the word of God is true, that who he says I am is enough, and I can rest secure in my identity. I don't need to bring anyone else down to make myself feel better. Or was I not going to trust him? Obedience is linked to trust. Trust is linked to intimacy. You can't have trust without obedience. And you cannot have intimacy without trust. So if there's an area God is calling you to obedience in today, it's also an invitation for intimacy. He's saying, I want you to obey in this area because I want you to trust me because I want that closeness with you. But oftentimes in our culture and the way we work, we think of obedience as a separation rather than an invitation. So the second privilege we have with the Lord is assurance. He gives us assurance as children of God. He wants us to not only be intimate, but sure. In 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may think that maybe if on a good day, maybe I think so, maybe you think you have eternal life. No, it says, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. A pastor conducted a study where he was um, interviewing people, and the first question he would ask people is, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? These are just people on the street walking by that he would interview. And if they said yes to that question, he would say, do you believe that you have eternal life? And he said the, the results of that were that the majority of people who answered yes to the first said maybe to the second question. And I resonate with that as well. But the reason is, is because we often go by our feelings. And the way to be sure is not to feel sure. John Stott says many people rely too much on their superficial feelings. One day they feel close to God, all the warm fuzzies. The next day they feel alienated from him again. And since they think that their feelings are an accurate reflection of their spiritual condition, they fall into a frenzy of uncertainty. And I have been here. God, I felt so close to you yesterday and today. I'm like, where are you? I don't feel you. But our feelings are indicative of our humanity and not God's divinity. Our feelings are indicative that we have um, a battle with our flesh oftentimes, and they are not indicative of God's existence. When I 
sit down and I'm not feeling like reading my Bible, that's telling me more about myself than who God is. That's telling me that there's a battle of the flesh happening. And so God wants to give us assurance because we can't find it in ourselves. So where do we go? He wants to give it to us. And there's three places he wants to give it. First, the word of God. If you are here and you're struggling with doubt, I want to encourage you to memorize some of these scriptures. Oftentimes when we struggle with doubt, the word of God is at the bottom of the list of places we go, when it should be at the top. Now, if we trace the first seed of doubt back to the very beginning of human history, the very first seed of doubt is in the garden. Eve and Adam are living their best life, and a serpent comes and tells them, did God tell you this is the tree you shouldn't eat? He's placing a seed of doubt in Eve about the goodness of God. And Eve listens and eats the fruit. And I wonder what would have happened if Eve heard that doubt and said, hmm, there's some doubt there. I'm going to go and say, talk to God. I want to go see what he says again. And what if she had said, God, God, um, the serpent's telling me this thing. Is this true? But instead, we know that she didn't do that. So what would it look like in our life if when we have doubt, we say, God, I'm hearing this thing. Is this true? The second way we can be assured is that God speaks to our hearts. In Romans 5, 5, God tells us that his love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And this is different than superficial changing feelings. This is a deep knowing. When I was pregnant with my son Jonah, um, books and people who loved us told us that Nathaniel should talk to my stomach while he was in there. And so every single night, um, he and I both sat there trying to think of things to say to uh, Jonah, and it was, you know, you can only think of so much to say to a stomach. And Nathaniel would talk and talk to my belly, and we felt really silly. Well, then the day came that Jonah was born, and there were nurses sprinting around the labor room. There was beeping, loud noises. Things were loud, and, and they give me Jonah, and he's screaming his little head off because he's probably hungry, and it's a new world, and what is going on? And Nathaniel next to me says, hey, Jonah. And Jonah whips his head around because he had the conviction that that was his father's voice. He knew that voice. He was familiar with that voice. And so going back to the first way we are assured, when we're in the word of God, it's going to deepen our conviction when things are loud and crazy in the world around us. And then the third way we can have assurance is through the fruit of the Spirit. Because in John 15:5, the word tells us, God says, abide in me and I will abide in you. And the promise attached to this command is you will bear much fruit. So if you stay in me, there's going to be a certain outcome here. And Paul goes on in Galatians to tell us exactly what that outcome is. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the promise is that if we stay in Christ, if we have the Holy Spirit working and living in us, we are going to see growth in that direction of the fruit of the Spirit. And I want to encourage you to encourage those around you in your joy group, in your community, because we don't often see growth on a day-to-day -day basis in ourselves, but other people can see it. So call it out in your community and encourage each other. Maria, you are so faithful to show up 
all the time. You're faithful to the Lord. I see you here when things are easy. I see you when things are hard. Kalia, you have the joy of the Lord in your life. It is written all over your face every time I see you, whether you're having a great day or a bad day. I see the joy of the Lord in your life. Assurance. We can look at our life and see the fruit of the Spirit and be assured. So the first privilege is intimacy. The second privilege is assurance. And the third privilege we have as children of God is security. I worked at a preschool, like I mentioned earlier, and I would be amazed at the number of times that children could be invited and then uninvited to a birthday party within 30 minutes. If you are not familiar with preschoolers, birthday parties are the currency of their love, okay? It's like, you're invited to my birthday party. Don't steal that toy. You're not invited to my birthday party anymore. And then there's tears and crying. And teacher, I'm not invited to her birthday party. And five minutes later, they've made up and they're best friends and um, they're living in their little made-up house together. And so sometimes when we are insecure in our relationship with God, it can feel kind of that way. Oh, I made a mistake. I sinned. I missed the mark. How does God feel about me? Where do I stand with him? Insecurity plays out. And God wants us to be secure. He says in Romans 8:38, I have come, or I am sure, that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And John 8.35 tells us that a slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son remains forever. When I was a teenager, my dad is a lawyer, and I am not a lawyer, but I love a good argument. And as a teenager, if I did something wrong, I would try and argue why I was right, even if I knew I was wrong. And I still do this today. If me and my husband get in arguments, and I know I'm right, but halfway through the argument, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. I'm wrong. I still argue that wrong point to see if I can prove him into believing it's right. (laughs) And so the same would happen with my dad. If I made a mistake, I would go to him and we would get in a big, big argument and I would storm off to my room. But in that moment, I'm still Rebecca Gleason, Gary Gleason's daughter. The relationship has not changed. Relationship depends on birth, Fellowship depends on behavior. So our fellowship may have been broken in that moment, but I was still a child of Gary Gleason. And that's the way it is with the Lord. We are children of God, period, end of story. Insecurity comes when we, sit, when we doubt who God is, if he's a good dad, if he's a good father, or if we doubt who we are. Are we really children of God, or am I just a guest? Am I just a visitor? My mom would have these placemats um, for, I don't know if they still do this with kids, but we had plastic placemats that we would put on the table so if we made a mess, they could just clean them up. And she had educational ones for us that had like the map of the United States and coins and all these things so we could learn things during dinner, I guess. And then um, during Christmas time, she would make special ones for me and my sister using the pictures from the year. She would get them printed and laminate them, and then we would each have a placemat at our dinner table with our names on them. 
um, and all these family pictures from the year. And we would get to use those placemats, and then when guests came over, they would use the educational placemats. <laughs> Sometimes I think that we think we have the educational placemats when really we have a permanent seat at the table of God. When we mess up, make a mistake, hurt ourselves, hurt other people, we don't need to go to time out and then work up our way back up to the table. We get to just return to the table and say, God, I want fellowship with you again. Man, I messed up. I'm sorry. I want to sit at the table, and God's at the table ready for you. Repentance should be as just natural as breathing. Repentance is just to say, I'm going to turn this way. I went that way, but I want to come back to you, God. So the privileges we talked about today is we have intimacy. We get a closeness in our relationship with God. We get assurance. We don't have to waffle back and forth just based off of our feelings. Oh, no, I don't feel God's presence today. Is he real? Is he not? We have assurance. We can know that he is. And third, we have security. We don't have to be like my preschool students questioning if we're invited to God's birthday party or not. We are invited to the eternal party that is to come. And so my question for you today is where have you been like me up in Portland, not realizing my privilege of the max pass? Where in your relationship with God have you maybe not realized a privilege or the depth of the privilege that you have? And as I was praying for today and preparing, um, I felt like Maybe there's some of us today who are sitting here feeling a little bit bored in our relationship with God. And boredom comes from finiteness. But God is infinite. And the intimacy he wants to offer us in our relationship with him is infinite as well. And so I just want to encourage you today, if that is you, if you are feeling bored, I just want to encourage you to dive into the limitlessness that God has for you in each of these areas of your life. Because if you think, oh, he doesn't have something for me, he does. He totally does. Sometimes it just exists outside of these walls. When we invite him into every single part of our life. Or maybe you're here today and it's either your very first time, welcome, or you've been coming a little bit and you have not made that decision to be a child of God. But you're like, I want in. I want into a table where um, I don't get kicked out every time I mess up. I want into this permanency of a relationship with God where I can be called a son and a daughter of God. And I have that safety and security and intimacy with God. I want a relationship with God. And if that's you, we're going to have a moment, um, a moment in a minute to make that decision. When we sin, when we hurt other people or hurt ourselves or hurt God, that's sin. And we're born into a world where we can see that happening all the time. We're hurting ourselves, we're hurting each other based off of our actions. We can tell that this world is not perfect. And so God said, I want to restore that relationship with you. I am longing for a relationship with you. I want that so badly that I'm going to send my one son to die for you, to take on the punishment of all that hurt. 
because our actions have consequences. And God cared so much about being in an intimate relationship with us that he said, I'm going to send my son to die and take on that punishment so that you can be close to me. So Jesus died on a cross and he rose again. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered the thing that tore us apart from God. So that we can live this out. This doesn't just have to be an idea. Intimacy, security, assurance, it just doesn't have to be an abstract idea that some Christians like reach some achievement of. No. God's giving this to every single one of us when we enter a relationship with him and he's longing for that with us. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for reminding us that we are your children based on birth, that we have been born again into your kingdom, that we are your children not off of earning, not off of striving, that we are your children because we can be born again into your kingdom, Lord. I just pray for anyone here who feels bored in their relationship with you or stuck, that you would bring them to a deeper level with you, God, a deeper intimacy, deeper assurance, more security, less fear, no fear at all. And you can keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you're here today and you have not ever um, made that decision to follow Christ and you want to, you want to begin a relationship with God, um, we're going to pray a prayer in a minute. And it's not a magic prayer. There's no magic words here. It's just saying, Jesus, I want to accept your invitation of relationship with me. So if that's you today, would you just raise your hand? Awesome. All right. Would you all just repeat after me? Dear Father, Thank you that I'm a child of God. Thank you that nothing can take that away. Thank you that you sent your one and only son to die for me. And that he rose and conquered death. I accept you as Lord of my life. I put my faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.